Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. What kind of story are you in? Does it have a plot? Does it have a hero? Does it have a narrator who around every twist and turn of your life is saying, little does he know? Does your story mean anything a hundred years from now? How does your story end? Has your story been tested? You know, like in those early chapters, when we begin to understand that much of what makes this story work is finding friends, finding something you're good at, and fitting in, it's brutal when you don't fit in. What's your story? Or you get to those middle chapters when on paper things start to look pretty good for a lot of us, like you get the great job, the great house, the great spouse, the great kids, great weekends. I mean, for crying out loud, you're in Colorado. But then there's something maybe inside, just a little gnawing, that's it? Is this all there is? What's your story? And then, I'm sorry to tell you, but those later chapters are coming. And your kids, they grow up and they walk out of your house and into their own lives. And your job is winding down and and your body's wearing down. And you begin to ask, can I get more time? Do I have more time? What's your story? Our lives are held together by the stories we believe to be true. Have I got a story for you? It's the Apostle Paul writing a letter to an ancient church in Greece named Corinth. Here's what he says. Here's the story he tells Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. The word of the Lord. This story sits on four verbs, died and buried, raised and appeared. But this story begins with the subject of those verbs. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, 
Christ appeared. Christ. It's a Greek word that means anointed one. And in the ancient religious world, there were two kinds of people who were anointed. A king was anointed to lead God's people, and a priest was anointed to connect people to God. It's the translation from the First Testament Hebrew of the word you may have heard of, Messiah. Messiah is Christ. Christ the anointed one. And it's interesting to hear Jesus receive that title at one high point in his ministry. It's in Matthew 16. The crowds are huge that are following him. It's like paparazzi. But he does, you know, remember the old movie Dead Poets Society? He does one of these. Boys, boys, bring it in. His disciples. And he says, who do they, the crowds, who do they say I am? And the disciples They've been listening. They say, oh, some say you're John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had recently been martyred by Herod, but maybe come back to life. Or others are saying you're you're Elijah, you know, one of those old miracle-working prophets. Oh, no, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the writing prophets. But then Jesus says, but guys, who do you say that I am? Now, what happens next is not surprising in that Peter, also called Cephas in this story, He speaks first. He always speaks first. What is surprising is that he gets it right. And he says, you may remember his answer. He says, you are the what? Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. One of the things we have to reckon with when we come to Easter, when we come to Christmas, when we come to the story of Christianity, one of the things we must reckon with is the hero of the story. Christ, Jesus. Now, not so much the things he did, but even more the things he said. In one of the portraits of Jesus in the New Testament, there's four portraits named after their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just in John's portrait, we see some of the things Jesus said that are, there's no other way to describe it, massive. He says, for instance, are you hungry? I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. Chapter seven, are you thirsty? If you drink of me, I'm the living water. You'll never be thirsty again. Chapter eight, are you having trouble navigating through life, trying to figure out what all this is? What's reality? I'm the light of the world. Chapter 11, are you scared to die? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Chapter 14. And this one is really a cringe in our Western culture. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in our culture, that just sounds narrow and arrogant. But the church has not proclaimed Jesus as the only way to God to be arrow or narrow or arrogant, though we have not always handled that well. But the church has proclaimed Jesus as the only way to God because there is no one else like Jesus. He's unique. He's remarkable. He's, he's irresistible. How so? Well, think for just a moment about how this movement started. Jesus was a Jew. The movement started with thousands of Jews in Jerusalem and in the synagogues around the Mediterranean cradle. Jews. Now, you need to understand that the worldview of a Jew was this. 
No person could ever be God. They believed Messiah would come, but Messiah would be like George Washington, who would be a great general that would rally a militia and raise Israel up from the oppression of Rome. They believed that George Washington was coming. They did not ever in their wildest imagination think that Messiah would be God or the Son of God. So what does that mean? That means this. Imagine that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, comes making all these claims. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the only way to God. And he gets thousands of Jews to follow him who said that could never happen. What's the only explanation? I submit the only explanation is that Jesus is startling. Absolutely stunning to start the movement among the Jews. Now, that's Christ, and Christ died. Here I want us to enter the mindset of Paul, who's writing this letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul, the apostle, he believed in Messiah. He believed that Messiah would come, would be a man, and he, I'm sure, considered Jesus and all his miracles and all his teachings, but for Paul, he knew for a fact that Jesus could not be the true Messiah. Why? Because of the way he died. How did Jesus die? On a cross. Now, even the Romans admitted that if you were hung on a cross, it was the most ignominious form of death. It was the worst for the worst. The Jews, they thought, Deuteronomy said, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, abandoned, given up by God. So Paul's thinking is, yeah, I consider all Jesus, all he said, all he done, but he could not be this Messiah because he died on a cross. And therefore, Paul, a Pharisee, a lay person, lay leader in his synagogue, did everything he could to stop the Christian movement. It wasn't true. And he hauled Christians off the jail. He held others, their clothes while they were stoned. He was a key force against the Christian movement for several weeks until Jesus decides to make one more resurrection appearance. Paul is on the road to Damascus to get more Christians and take them to jail when all of a sudden Jesus appears. He leaves the Father's right hand, comes down, and this time it's in his unveiled glory that we will one day see, but if we saw it now, we'd die. Everyone, you know, cowers. And Jesus says, he uses Paul's Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? He knows. And Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And there, the resurrection for Paul becomes a paradigm-shattering experience. And the gospel changes Paul's life and turns it upside down. Good news of who Jesus is. You see, here's the gospel. God is described by a devastating four-letter word. H O. L Y. He's holy, completely other, burning purity, gas guzzling glory. There's no one like him. And if we were exposed to his holiness for even a second, we would die. Because our life is described by a devastating three letter word S I 
N. We've thought wrong. We've said wrong. We've done wrong. We've hurt people. And we've ignored the one who's given us life. So how do they come together, holy and sin? Jesus Christ, the anointed one. He comes down from heaven, takes on a human body. Why? So that he could live the life of perfect obedience we should have lived. And he gives that to us so that when God the Father sees us, he says, I see Jesus' righteousness. Welcome. You have the fitness now to come live with me. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died so that we can be forgiven God's love and forgiveness like a giant sponge soaking up all our sins and washing them away. We have the fitness now and the forgiveness to live in the presence of God. Christ died and he was buried. Buried, witnessed in every gospel by women so that on this morning they'd know which tomb to go back to. Buried is proof of death. And then, He's raised, raised to new life, not resuscitated. I mean, he was in there three days, two nights. He's dead. But when he comes back, and this is the promise to us, Jesus being the first fruits, what happens to him will happen to us at the end of time. And what happened? Well, he's in this new body. It's transformed, but it's, it's different. Like Luke says, it's still physical because every time in Luke, after Jesus comes back from the dead, he meets with his disciples. The question is, what's for dinner? Let's eat. Again and again, it's about food and they're eating. It's physical and he could be touched and embraced and he could be heard and he could be seen and they broke bread together. It's a physical body, this new body, but yet it's different. John tells us Jesus would appear inside locked rooms like he came through the wall. Or he would get from place to place, not by walking. He would just show up. It's a new kind of physical body, not confined by the confining life we know. Which, by the way, if you think about it, the reason the stone was rolled away from the tomb was not so Jesus could get out. It was so that we could get in and see that he wasn't there. And then it says he appeared It's the last verb. He appeared, and Paul walks us through a chronological order, first to Cephas, or Peter, and the original 12, uh, and then he appears to James, his half-brother. I've often thought, can you imagine what James was thinking, his half-brother come back from the dead? James and the early apostles in the Jerusalem church, and then finally, Paul says, to over 500 people. Now, in that line is the kind of essence of Christianity, Two things. One, accessible. Paul says, go talk to them. You don't believe me? Go talk to them. We're hiding nothing here. Go find the originals like Luke did when he wrote his gospel. Go find the people who saw him and talk to them. But the second point about Christianity, it sits anchored on eyewitness testimony, which is why today it comes to you. 2,000 years later, you need to decide if that eyewitness testimony from the early followers is true. You get to choose. Now, in our culture, it's kind of off-putting to remind people of this, of what Christmas and Easter are actually about. They're actually about a decision you need to make. It's not just a holiday. It is, did Jesus rise from the dead? 
You have to make up your mind. Now, our culture is much more comfortable because we live in Facebook culture with like or don't like. <laughs> I like that. I don't, you know, I talk to people, you know, I don't like Christianity. Why? Well, all the things it says about money, you know, it talks about money all the time, and churches are always asking for money. Well, it's no secret that the churches have certainly abused their need for money to exist. However, Jesus, you're right, did talk tons about money. He talked about money more than he talked about anything else. Why? Well, someone famous once said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus wants your heart. He wants relationship and allegiance from the deep core of yourself. So he talks about money. It gets worse. Because if you actually understand what Jesus is saying about money, here's the truth of it. It's not yours. (laughs) It's not your money. It's his money. He keeps your heart beating so you can live and earn it. He gives you skills. He gives you job. I mean, it's his money. You're just a manager. Oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah, I don't like it so much either. So another person says, you know what I don't like about Christianity? They're always hung up on sex. They are so old school. It's ancient, their views on sex. But it's the same deal. I mean, I would say to them this, yeah, I don't like it either, but you know, it's not your body. It's not your body. It's his body. He keeps it alive. He gave it to you. He wrote the manual on what sex is for and how it should work. It's his. I don't like, I don't like that either. I don't. Here's the point. I was rambling there. That's all for free. Let's just make that clear. Here's the point. Are you telling me that because you don't like what Jesus and the Bible say about sex or say about money or anything else, are you telling me that because you don't like it that Jesus has not risen from the dead? The question of the morning is, and you have to accept it or reject eyewitness testimony, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because how you answer that question determines everything about everything in your life. Everything orbits around that. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, walked out of his grave by his own power, he is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do, and you'll meet him someday. If not, if you reject it, fine. In fact, if I reject, I'd go for the money. Sex is good too. You have to decide. Did he walk out of that grave? What's your story? Let me just for a moment go one step further as you think about your story. What if it's true, this? What if he did walk out of his grave? There are two implications. First, if it's true, life is changed. Life is changed. How? At least two ways. First, life becomes free from the sin of bondage. Did you see what Paul says in verses 8 and 9? It's really interesting how he talks about himself here. He says, last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also as to one abnormally born. That means Paul's way of saying, yeah, Jesus had to make an extra special trip for me. (laughs) And then he says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. You know, in our modern lingo, 
the definition of what Paul was? A terrorist. He was a terrorist trying to put down another religion and killing people to do it. Do you understand what Paul is feeling and sensing and conveying to us here 2,000 years? It's this, there is no one on the planet who is out of the reach of the grace of God. There is no one in this room, no matter what you've done, that's beyond the reach of the grace of God. He loves you. He wants to save you and wash away your sins. You are not, no matter what the gullies of guilt you brought in here, the reservoirs of regret, no matter what you've done, God loves you and wants to forgive your sins because his son came just to do that. You know, the resurrection is like a receipt, right? You ever walk into a store and get everything you thought you needed, walk out, receipt in the bag, and say, oh, wait, wait, I forgot the milk. So you go back into the King Supers, and you're carrying your bag, and all of a sudden, a uniformed security personnel walks up and says, hey, I need to look in that bag. And so you open it, and you pull out that receipt, and then you say, trouble me not, oh, uniformed security police personnel. I've got a receipt, and that receipt says everything's been paid for. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt written across history that everything's been paid for. Life changes because we become free from the bondage of sin. And you know how else life changes? We become full of significance. Can you imagine being with the Apostle Paul maybe today and touring some of the old churches and everything? And then it, the tour would end at the Roman Colosseum where many scholars believe the Apostle Paul died on the floor of the Roman Colosseum, fed to lions or martyred somehow. And you're there with Paul and you walk out through one of the tunnels and, and you say to Paul, Paul, was it worth it? I mean, you were beaten you were imprisoned. You were killed by Rome. Was it worth it? And Paul would say, look, look out through the tunnel. You see that gate up there? That gate, it was called the Emperor's Gate. You know who used to sit up there? A guy by the name of Nero. And Nero was the most powerful, powerful person in the world. I want you to look at that gate. Who sits there now? A cross stands where the emperor sat. A cross who wins? Who wins? This history, this movement, this Christian movement is the most powerful movement in the history of the world. And talk about following Jesus and gaining a life of significance. Who wins? Life changes when that resurrection joy infuses your life. But death changes too. The way you view death Changes because what resurrection means is that nothing here is the last word. And because of the resurrection, no matter what is going on in your life, it's not the last word. Some of you came in here this morning, you're single. Whether you've never been married or you're divorced and you're getting older and you remember, you're starting to think, will I ever know that joy again of a marriage, of a relationship? Will I ever know what that's like? The resurrection of Jesus says, it's hard, and it hurts, and may you find someone. But you need to know this. There is coming a moment when there will be a wedding feast with real wine and real arms that will embrace you, Jesus welcoming home his church, and that feast 
is for you. You will see death die. You will see evil dissolve. You will see everything sad come untrue. And you can have that promise become joy that infuses your life now. You can be, as Jesus said, born again into a whole new existence. What's that like? Martin Luther, 500 years ago, described it this way. Imagine if a baby in the womb could um, reason. What would the baby be thinking about? What are these hands for? Just on time. (laughs) What are these feet for? What's this mouth for? That was 500 years ago, 15 years ago, I heard a Presbyterian riff on Martin Luther. He put it this way. He said, imagine there's twins in the womb, and the one twin is a believing twin who says, yeah, I believe there is a life to come, and the other twin is skeptical. No, it's just the here and now. There's no life after this life. So they're, they're talking. And the believing twin is saying, but I, I just sense there's something beyond this life because there's something happening inside of me. Like this empty space, like lungs. At 10 weeks, lungs are forming in the, in the child. And then at 28 weeks, the lungs are actually breathing, not air, but uh, fluid, as if they're preparing for an existence to come. But the skeptical one says, oh, now, that's nothing. Don't think about that. Stop it. I mean, all you need is the nutrients and the oxygen that's coming through the umbilical cord. Life is cord. All you need is cord. All you need is cord. All you need is cord. Cord. The skeptical one saying, you know, it's the here and now. All you need is Fox News and CNN. Oh, the stock market, the price of gas, this faith, this hope, this love stuff. Parents, you lost a child. Grieve for a while, but you'll never see that child again. And by the way, you're going to die and be gone too. Women, men, you work decades at a career, at a vocation. What's it going to mean 100 years from now? Yeah, absolutely nothing. Maybe if you're the president of the United States. Nothing. It's the here, it's the now. But, the belie- but, but I have this space in my chest. I have these yearnings for something more. I have this sense that there might be more. You know, uh, childbirth is painful. Oh, come on, I thought half the room would like erupt. And the, <laughs> if ever there was an amen. <laughs> it's especially painful for the child. Going through that birth canal to squeeze that fluid out of the lungs so that they can expire from one life and inspire into another life. And suddenly the lights, they see light with their eyes and they can hug their mom with their hands and they can eat pizza with their mouth and they can play soccer with their feet and they're home, they're home for now. 
Well, what about the umbilical cord? Well, that's why you have a belly button to which you can declare, you used to be everything to me. You were my life, my blood, my breath. But I've been born. I'm no longer bound by you. And believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be born again. And everything you know in this life, especially its suffering and death and evil and pain, you can look at it and say, you used to be everything to me, but I am no longer bound by you. I've been born again. And Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in this moment of quiet, Easter, year of our Lord, 2019, a moment for you to make up your mind What is this Easter holiday about? You either accept the eyewitness testimony from the story in scripture, or you reject it. It's your choice, it's your choice. And I'd like to give you a moment to make up your mind, and then I'll pray. So just this moment between you and Jesus and anything you wanna say to him, even if it's Jesus, prove it, prove it. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for bringing us together today to hear this story. And I pray for every heart in the room to make up their mind. And Jesus, would you just show yourself to each one of us today in some way? Please, please show yourself to us. Please give us a vision for our lives A vision for the end. We know the vision at the end of the scriptures is that there's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes down every power in our lives. Sin, evil, death. Takes it down by being the sacrifice. Not through violence, not through power, but through love. He takes the world by love. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May that story, Lord, ravish us. We especially pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. What an amazing day I'm sure it's been for you, Jesus, to see Easter around the globe, but yet we are mindful this morning that for some of our brothers and sisters, it's been a hard day. We think in Sri Lanka, where bombs have gone off in churches and killed over 200 people. We pray that they would see the Lamb of God. Lord, help us to frame our lives 